welcome to this episode of Horrific History and Hauntings. I'm Beth. And I'm Randy. We're your hosts, here to talk about the stories that the history books ignore. From horrific epidemics and ghostly hauntings to the catastrophes and tragic events that have sickened humanity. We are going to cover the toolbox killers, Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker. There's going to be at least three parts to this case, so just a warning for that. And we've chosen to offer this episode to everyone to give you a glimpse of the content that our paying subscribers will enjoy. We like to know what we purchase or will be paying for before we commit to anything, and we're sure that you do too. And we hope by offering this episode free to everyone, we will allow you to make an informed decision before considering a subscription with us. And your support will mean a lot to us, and we want you to know what you're investing in. Yes. The link to these options when they go live will be the first link in the description you come to. It'll be a link tree. And after that, in that link tree, there'll be a website, like our podcast's website. And then you'll just find Horrific History and Hauntings there. You'll see the subscription option from it. But they're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> they will be. They will be. But I we figure start saying it now. give you a preview of what you would be paying for. And our standard episodes will still go up. The yeah. shorter, not the shorter, well, the ones we've been, the one you're used to. Yes. This, mm. The ones that require me, this took me months. And I'm still not even done typing the notes. So I'm still not done. Yes. This one is actually a horrible episode. It is. Not um, worth your money. Good thing we aren't charging. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I put a lot of work into this. That's why the ones in the future will be for paying subscribers because I spent a lot of time and energy and work. I'm going to go ahead and say that there is a content or and trigger warning, triggers warning. This is not suitable for children at all or sensitive in- individuals. It is graphic and it mentions torture and sexual assault that involves teenage girls. So listener discretion is advised. Indeed. Beth, we should thank people who voted us on Good Pods to basically number one in the indie section we're in. Uh, well, we're no longer there. Well, we but were for a we while. we were for a few days, a yeah. week or so, I believe. Um, so, yes, actually, thank you. That made me feel really great. Yeah, and we were also featured in another podcast. I think it's called Headliners Pod Pod. Headliners Pod Pod episode. And they also gave me a big head, too. Yeah, they, they made us feel real good. Um, <laughs> it'll be episode called the Handlighter Podcast, and it was season two. It came out on uh, January 10th on the Handlighter Podcast. And we're the last ones at the end of their episode. Yeah, but I recommend you listen to it. It's kind of fun. Yeah. They do a little game where they try to, they hear clips of the episode and then try to add two made up names, then the real name of the podcast and guess which name is real. That's basically how I got that. Yeah, that's I think they might have was. different themes. They have one here called Game of Tones. Maybe they choose something else out of maybe they play a different yeah. type of game there yeah I, I figured we should probably shout out oh, to those two yeah, things yeah, before we definitely. continue since this is a free episode and everybody should hear it that is listening to us yes i have what happened today in history oh. i'm not going to go too far into them not only because this is probably going to be a long episode but also it's not really that horrific so it don't have to be horrific <laughs> it just has to be something that happened well <laughs> 1807 january 19th is the day we're recording, by the way. Robert E. Lee was born. That's not horrific. No. And 1809, January 19th, Edgar Allan Poe was born. I seen that on this tombstone. Yes, when I went to, I was one of those people who went out of my way to hunt down a grave site. Yeah. And with that, I guess let's 
get into this. Okay. We're going to talk about the early life of Lawrence Bittaker first. He was born September 27, 1940. He was placed in an orphanage in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But then he was adopted by George Bittaker and his wife as an infant. And one source said it was his aunt and uncle. George Bittaker worked in aircraft factories, and this job required him to move around often. He moved, well, they moved from Pennsylvania to Florida to Ohio, and eventually they settled in California. Due to this, Bittaker was not able to make long-lasting or very good friendships, which may have been part of the reason he turned out the way he did, but it also may not. It's not an excuse. Bittaker had trouble in school. It wasn't believed that he was bullied, but he just found it extremely boring. And this could be because later they found out he had an IQ of 138. It also may have been due to not being able to make long-lasting friendships. So he just had a higher intelligence because he's lonely? I don't know why he had a higher intelligence. I thought that's what you were saying. No, uh, just those are <laughs> possible reasons as to why he didn't do well in school. Because he was very smart, clearly. Mm -hmm. At 12 years old, he was arrested for shoplifting. Over the following four years, he was arrested many times for the same reason. And he later said that he did this to compensate for his parents not showing him love. But that's unknown if he was talking about his adoptive parents or his biological parents or possibly both pairs of parents. They did seem rather busy. Yeah. One source, I'm not sure how reliable this one is, said that Bittaker, that during his childhood, he also played with fire and burned down a few sheds for attention. I think that's just a thing that happened a lot before video games. Maybe. He said that he planned to kill his parents that abandoned him as well. He also mentioned that his aunt burned him with a cigarette and that they had rabbits that he would use pliers to remove their teeth. I'm hoping he was lying about this and or that this source was not accurate, but I don't know. It's a known thing that, that tends to be a sign of future... Uh, violence. Yes, but it does. But another source he said that attention. he didn't have any childhood problems with like animal abuse or anything like that. But this source did. So felt like it was good to mention it. He might have burned down a shack and distracted them while he extracted teeth. That's horrible. Yeah. Poor bunnies. There was also a mention that he had a girlfriend in high school and she was blonde with blue eyes, which some of these victims had as well that he took to the same mountains he took the victims, and he recorded him and this girlfriend making out. Recorded? Audio. Oh, well, how weird is that? I guess it's all the recording you had. <laughs> he dropped out of school at about age 17 in 1957. He did this to make money through illegal activities, and probably because he kept getting into trouble with the law for shoplifting. What would you do in 1957? Smuggling? I don't know. How big was the drug trade back then? I don't know, but I know he did a lot of theft. Oh. Uh, that was a lot of what he did. Now we're going to talk about the early life of Roy Norris. He was born February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. His childhood was full of abuse and neglect. His parents blamed him for having to marry when they didn't want to or that they, when they weren't ready because his mother got pregnant with him before marriage, and during that time, it was a big problem in society, and abortions were illegal. They constantly made it clear to him that they never wanted him and that their life of misery was all his fault. Uh, it can cause problems as you grew up to hear that. Yeah. Wow. 
During his childhood, he was sent from his parents to foster homes and back and forth frequently. He was once placed in a home with a Hispanic family who he said abused him. It's unclear really what kind of abuse he suffered while there. He claimed sexual abuse was part of it. But whatever it was, he spent the rest of his life hating the Hispanic race. Oh, he's a racist. Yes. And that's not even proven to be true. He could have just been saying it. These people might just be wanting attention, but I, I can't say. I don't know these people. Yeah, I don't know. A little bit about his family life, more about it. His father was a scrapyard worker, and his mother was a drug-addicted housewife. Norris claimed later that he rarely had enough food or clothes, and he also said his parents accused him of things that he didn't do. When he was a 16-year-old, Norris was visiting a woman. Some sources say it was a relative of his. I'm not sure. She was in her 20s, and she ordered him to leave because he talked to her in a sexual manner, and she also told his father, who threatened to beat him. After that, Norris stole his father's car and drove it into the Rocky Mountains. While he was there, he attempted to commit suicide by injecting air into an artery in his arm. Oh, the classic. He failed. He was found by police later and returned to his parents. And after this failed attempt and being returned, his parents told him and his sister that they never wanted either of them and planned to divorce once they were older. Why? Did they even stick with them for each other if they didn't care? Back then, it was... The social norm. Yeah. Mm. Probably not the best thing, considering both of them were so miserable and blaming it on their children. Mm-hmm. Norris, unlike Bittaker, struggled with school. Not in the way that Bittaker... Bittaker really didn't struggle. He just chose not to do well in school. Yeah. He, unlike Bittaker, wasn't very intelligent. A year after his suicide attempt, he dropped out of school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego between 1965 to 1969, and he was a naval electrician. He spent about four months in Vietnam, where he discovered heroin and marijuana, and he quickly became addicted. As most people do when they discover it. Yeah. And that was a common thing in Vietnam, I believe. He was discharged after he began to attack women. Oh, no. Yeah. Some of Bittaker's earlier crimes, he was arrested on various charges, including a hit-and-run, auto theft, and evading arrest shortly after dropping out of school. He was sent to the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 19 years old. When he was released, he discovered his parents had disowned him and they had moved away. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh about this, but it's... <laughs> That's terrible. These are just poor, unfortunate people for a while here. Yeah. Shortly after being released, he faced another arrest by the FBI in Louisiana, just days after his parole. He was charged with violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. One right after the other. Yeah. In August 1950, he was found guilty and sentenced to 18 months in a federal reformatory in Oklahoma. Well, back in you go. Mm-hmm. Due to his behavior, he was later transferred to a medical center in Springfield, Missouri. Eventually, he was released after serving 213 days of his sentence. Well, that's not terrible. Hmm. December 1960, Bitteker was arrested again for robbery. The trial ended in May 1961, and he was convicted and received a sentence of 1 to 15 years in state prison. During the year, a psychiatric examination revealed Bitteker to have a significant concealed hostility manipulative behavior, paranoia, and borderline psychosis. He needed some serious help. Yeah. And to stop stealing everything he's seen. Yes. But that mental help 
probably wasn't nearly as good or easy to access back then. Yeah, what year was it? It's in the 60s. Oh, no, that's terrifying. Yeah, or 50s. Yeah. 60s or 50s. 1962, another evaluation highlighted that Bitteker lacked control over impulsive behavior. 1963, despite being confirmed to have mental health issues, Bitteker was granted early parole. He served less than one-sixth of his maximum sentence. Now, the thefts aren't as bad as what I imagine is to come, so. Yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah, so it doesn't seem like theft. People got their stuff back if they're lucky and everything, and Mm -hmm. oh, oh well, he got out early. That's not so bad, but. Things that could have prevented if he just stayed in longer, maybe. Yeah, is got what worries the you. Proper help. Just I don't think that was coming at that time. No, not <clears throat> you. Just weren't going to get that back then. No, they'd have done the best that they thought they could. Yeah, but uh, probably prescribed him some horrible drug. Electroshock therapy. <laughs> yeah, just two months after he was released, he violated his parole again. He was suspected of being involved in another robbery, which led to his return to prison. Of course. October 1964, Bitteker once again breached parole conditions, resulting in his return to prison. It's a going theme here. <laughs> 1966, Bitteker was interviewed by a psychiatrist and underwent another psychiatric examination. He claimed that stealing provided a sense of importance. He argued that the crimes he was convicted of occurred due to the circumstances beyond his control. It's just too much of an impulse. I cannot say no. Or I was raised poorly and now I have this impulse. I don't really know what he was trying to say here, but. Yeah. Despite receiving another diagnosis of borderline psychosis, he was released once again. Now, it's easy to point fingers at the parents, but we still don't know if it's nurture or nature (laughs) that caused this. Yeah. Um, It's pretty much no proof, just what he claims. Yeah. 1967, he received another parole violation resulting in his return to prison. Of course. Following his release, Bitteker faced arrest for leaving the scene of an accident and for theft. This led to a five-year sentence. He was released prematurely after serving only three years of the five-year sentence. His upbringing wasn't great, but I don't know. Possible. There's different sources say different things when it comes to his upbringing. So, I don't know. Mm -hmm. A confusing case, really. It's a repeat offender case. (laughs) Starting with a minor crime, Bitteker's criminal activities began to take a darker turn. He attempted to steal a steak from a supermarket by putting it down his pants. Oh, that happened here recently. A woman didn't. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, not recently, but in the big picture. Uh, no. It was more recent, a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh. This led to a confrontation with an employee who he ended up stabbing in the chest. That's escalated. I'm not sure. I believe the employee lived, but I'm not sure. Despite facing charges of attempted murder and shoplifting, he was convicted of the lesser offense of assault with a deadly weapon. But he was released again in November 1978. Were the prisons just full or did he act real nice while he was in there? Yeah. Now, another question. I wonder if every court knew about the other crimes. Because things weren't always um, as shared amongst the departments back then. So they might not have known he was such a repeat offender. I don't know. That's possible i feel like there's he's done so much and done so many though is it always how many states has it been i wonder i didn't count i don't know i know one was in oklahoma yeah so chances are even in the state it's hard for uh them to keep track back then yeah some of roy norris's earlier criminal activities his are much worse than bitteker's 
by November 1969, Norris had returned to Southern California. And that very month, he forcibly entered a taxi driven by a female in an attempt to rape her. He was promptly apprehended and faced charges of rape, assault, and attempted rape. How do you have I don't both. know. That's what it said. I thought that was confusing, too. Let him throw the book at him. He's done enough already. Uh, yeah. He was granted bail. Uh. February 1970, three months later, he assaulted another woman. He attempted to persuade her to allow him entry into her home, and upon her refusal, he tried to break in. She called the police, which led to his arrest before he could inflict any actual physical harm on her. I'm sure it was still traumatic and terrified her. So, Did he get a, I wonder if he was outside the house still. How persistent was he about this? As I mentioned before, Norris was not very smart. Oh, wow. Bitteker, in this case, was the brains. Norris was considered the muscle. Okay. Once they finally meet and do their crimes. May 1970 at San Diego University, Norris began stalking a student. He approached her and struck the back of her head with a rock, causing her to fall to her knees. He then knelt down on her back and repeatedly bashed her head into the sidewalk. She actually ended up surviving. Norris was arrested and faced charges of assault with a deadly weapon. Due to earlier psychiatric assessments revealing a severe schizoid personality, he was sentenced to five years at Atascadero, I believe is how that's pronounced, State Hospital. Well, did he serve his whole time there? 1975, he was released and placed on five years probation. He was considered no longer a threat to others. It's like when they're locked away, they just act completely different. Yeah. Then again, there's when it comes to him and his crimes, there's no women with him. Of course, he's going to be better behaved. Yeah. And that's not the kind of thing you can test for, I don't think, easily. No. Three months later in Renando Beach, he asked a 27-year-old woman walking home to ride on his motorcycle. She declined. He then parked and grabbed her scarf twisted it around her neck, and threatened to rape her. Then he drug her to some bushes and carried out his threat. She reported the incident to police, and about a month later, she identified his motorcycle and noted the license plate number. So about a month later, she just happened to see his motorcycle again and was able to get the license plate number. That was probably scary for her. Yeah. Now, a lot of people I know, that would have been a whole lot worse for him. If they'd have found him out in public again. Yeah. Uh, especially after an incident like that, a lot of people would arm themselves. Mm-hmm. He was arrested and charged with rape and convicted a year later. He was sent to the California men's colony to serve his sentence. And that's when he crossed paths with Bitteker. I love the name. The name what? The men's colony. It sounds like a, a oh. Victorian era a YMCA. Uh, and this is where they explored their horrific fantasies together. I'm going to talk a little bit now about how Bitteker and Norris are alike and how they are different. There's not much similarities between them. Repeat offenders. Yeah, that's one that they're alike. They were both abandoned or neglected by their biological parents. They both showed a lack of concern or care for anyone beyond their desires. They were willing to do anything to obtain what they wanted. They both had dark thoughts, fantasies, and ideas. However, it remains unclear who initially communicated these disturbing fantasies first. Yeah. I don't know if it was Norris. I'm assuming it was probably Norris considering his crimes, but I don't know. They don't know. Bitteker engaged in mostly theft until the supermarket stabbing incident. Most of his crimes were nonviolent, including a couple 
of believed to be unintentional hit and runs. Just alcohol induced or drug induced or something. Yeah, it's unknown if they're or fleeing from a previous theft that didn't get reported. <laughs> yeah, Norris committed violent crimes that were centered around sexual assaults. He used threats and physical force for sexual satisfaction. He targeted women when they were alone and utilized whatever was at hand to harm his victims. All charges against him were linked to rape and assault and classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Now, it's kind of weird that they would get along. A lot of times, one type that of criminal is. doesn't see the other type as a comrade, mm-hmm. more of a potential yeah. victim and a it's, terrible person. Yeah, it's very strange that these two managed to get along enough to do what they did. Bittaker displayed no indication of being a sexual sadist. It's uncertain whether he just harbored these sadistic thoughts before encountering Norris and just refrain from acting on them or if Norris is what brought this out in him because he showed no sign of a bad influence on the robber. In 1977, Bittaker and Norris met. Norris primarily mingled with the inmates from motorcycle gangs. They were known as the hardened criminals involved in the contraband drug trade. Norris taught Bittaker how to craft jewelry. This is when they started spending more time together and they began to get to know each other. Friendship bracelets. <laughs> Bittaker also was said to protect Norris from inmate attacks twice. By 1978, their friendship had grown stronger and they started talking about their dark thoughts. It's presumed that Bittaker was the mentally stronger one and so he took leadership of the role. And Bittaker mentioned that he initially thought Norris was savvy, and that's in quotes, as motorcycle gangs typically don't associate with those they perceive as weak. And despite this, Norris must have had some street smarts considering his involvement with dealing drugs while in prison. No matter how you look at it, it's still an odd combo. Yeah. Norris informed Bittaker that he found frightened young women highly stimulating and enjoyed witnessing the fear in their eyes as he raped them. You know, that's not the word he used. No. I highly doubt he used that word. Bittaker mentioned that if he were to rape a woman, he would also kill her to eliminate any witnesses and reduce the likelihood of getting caught. Norris, not being very smart, didn't want to keep getting caught and going to prison, so he liked the idea of getting rid of the witnesses. What a novel idea. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. They agreed to murder girls aged 13 to 19. And they didn't explain why these specific age ranges, probably because they're garbage. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. The plan was to kill a total of seven girls. And they discussed these plans daily in prison. Nothing else to do but make bracelets and discuss your future crimes. Yeah. Both had the intent to assault, rape, and mutually decided that killing the victims was the best course of action. Bittaker explored different torture methods while Norris seemed to content as long as he could just rape them. That's pretty much all Norris wanted. Of course. Which makes me wonder, Norris must have just seen that Bittaker was intelligent and he sit back and let him do all of the thinking and planning. The stuff he was good at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While he just got what he wanted. I don't know if he was particularly good. He kept getting called. Yeah, true. October 15th, 1978, Bittaker was the first one to be granted parole. Okay. It's a wonder he stayed out long enough for the other one to get out. (laughs) It really is. He returned to Los Angeles where he took a job as a mechanist. You mean a mechanic? Yeah, I don't know why it says mechanist. (laughs) Mechanic. 
It's mechanic. <laughs> Sounds like a D&D class. <laughs> he earned around $1,000 per week in the 70s, almost 80s. And yet he had plans to do all this other stuff instead. Mm-hmm. Despite being seen as more of a loner, he established connections in the neighborhood. They perceived him as helpful and generous. He occasionally donated to the Salvation Army. Well, got to get that good karma built up before you start your rampage. I don't think there's enough good karma in the world to make up, even close to what they did. He formed friendships with the local teens, Creep, and kept alcohol and marijuana in his motel room to entice them. His focus was on capturing their attention and building their trust. January 15, 1979, Norse was released from prison. He relocated to Redondo Beach to reside with his mother, and he started working as an electrician. Shortly after his release, he received a letter from Bittaker. I'm a mechanist. (laughs) (laughs) They reunited in February to discuss their intentions of raping, torturing, and killing the young girls. Bittaker, oddly enough, was the one to reach out to Norris. Yeah, it looks like he would have just kind of lived his own life after that. That's yeah. what most people would have. He should have. Yeah. And maybe not still things or stab grocery store clerks. Befriend the local youth. Yeah. Or, yeah, definitely not that. Maybe people your own age. If you're going to have friends over for drugs, make sure they're your own age. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't. Okay. Bittaker watched the beaches and the teen girls mostly. His intelligence helped him plan aspects such as selecting the victim's transportation, which he decided a spacious van would be best. As and, most crooks do. Yeah. And the location to murder the victims and where to dispose the bodies. Was it a basement, a dark alley, or a forest? Well, I'll mention it later. Oh, okay. Uh I'm wondering also if this isn't where, oh, it's a creepy white van with no windows came from. Pretty sure that came from the. This van wasn't white, though. I'm pretty sure that came from the Candyman, like not the movie, but the actual murder guy who collected. Oh, oh. I might be wrong, but I heard that possibility on Christopher and Eric's podcast where they brought him up. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was in Texas. Listened to a different podcast about them, but I don't remember much about it because it's been a while. And I believe the Candyman with his white van and candy is what done it. Not that Candyman. (laughs) They combined their money, and come February 1979, they bought a silver 1977 GMC cargo van with outside windows. Hey, was it a Ford Transit? (laughs) Bittaker saw this as an advantage, as well as the large sliding door on the passenger side, and he decided to call the van Murder Mac. Ah. I won't be using that. I'll just say van most of the time, because I've always heard that it's unlucky if you don't name your vehicle, but really, Murder Mac? Uh, I call my Subaru Subi. Not Subaru? That, no, it's Subi. Oh. Subi the Subaru. They equipped the van with a makeshift bed, drink coolers, and a toolbox containing items for subduing, maiming, torturing, killing, and it also included a sledgehammer, which... I suppose is for yeah. killing? Yeah. And Bittaker chose pliers. He just like, I'll add this one thing. Yeah. And most of it, I bet, could be played off as it's a work van. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It became a discreet vehicle for their sadistic activities, and it wasn't easily noticed. They drove up and down the Pacific Coast Highway to perfect their driving technique plan for the following few months, not their driving technique. They would frequently park at beaches to flirt with girls and take photos of them. Occasionally, they picked up some of these girls, but they would release them. 
Norris estimated they practiced with around 20 girls, though that count may have been lower than the actual number. Or higher, if they estimated, I don't know. Or higher, yeah. They were testing methods, building trust, coming up with strategies to capture their victims who were not cooperative and wouldn't get in the vehicle willingly. They found that by offering alcohol and drugs to the young girls, many of them would simply get into the van without them having to resort to violence. They also recognized that picking up hitchhikers was an easy method. Now, the candy man did use drugs as well. Really? And it worked not on, candy. And it worked on dudes. Oh, okay. So it ain't just a girl thing. No. Many hitchhikers were along less crowded freeways, and generally people tend to overlook them. So that's another reason they wanted hitchhikers. Yeah. By about April, they searched for an isolated location to execute their plans. They came across a fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. The road was blocked by a padlocked gate, so Bittaker used a crowbar to solve that problem. Good thing we have a toolbox. Yeah. The San Gabriel Mountains are situated west of San Bernardino County and north of Los Angeles. It has vast canyons, challenging terrain, making travel challenging by both foot and vehicle. Is that in Big Bang Theory? I don't know. Bernardino? Are you sure you're not? Uh, I think I heard them mention it before. The northern slope of the crest gradually descends to a desert floor, but the southern side plunges dramatically. Bittaker selected the San Gabriel Mountains for the attacks due to its being in an area where disposing of the bodies could be done discreetly. He was aware of the numerous wild animals, such as black bears, coyotes, pumas, and bobcats, which he believed would assist in naturally eliminating the remains without attracting attention. It's like the Florida Everglades, mm. but for California. Mm -hmm. Then they start to set their plan into motion. By late June, they were prepared to execute these plans, and they were had checked everything on the list. The van, ideal secluded spot, a toolbox stocked with supplies for torturing, a backup plan for victims who were not willing to enter the van voluntarily, and they were ready to go. Bittaker would drive with Norris concealed in the back of the van and ready to snatch the victims if needed. Their first victim was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. They called her Cindy. She was 16 years old. Oh, goodness. She resembled the typical attractive American girl, people said, and she had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was last seen wearing a white shirt with a black embroidery, dark blue jeans, and beige sandals. Just your average woman. Yeah. People described her as a sweet and pleasant girl. She was a tutor, and she aspired to attend college and teach language. June 24th, 1979, at around 7.45 p.m., while driving around in the van, smoking weed, and photographing potential victims, Bittaker and Norris noticed Cindy Schaefer walking home alone after attending a church meeting in Redondo Beach. When Norris seen her, he said to Bittaker, there's a cute little blonde. They approached her and offered her marijuana and a ride home, which she declined and continued walking. She just left church. Mm-hmm. They drove ahead of her and parked near her driveway, and Norris hid his top half in the van where she couldn't see past the shoulders. What do you mean by just his top half? He just stuck his legs out. What do you mean? But his bottom half pretty much was, say you're cleaning your car and you put the top half of your body okay, in the car. Okay, and the okay. I get what you're your saying. Your legs and everything else is I out. Just, I was just thinking of him like laying across the seat with his feet sticking out. <laughs> no. <laughs> when Cindy approached, Norris spoke briefly before grabbing her and pulling her into the van. Bittaker cranked up the radio volume to drown out any potential screams 
while Norris tied Lucinda's legs and arms and used duct tape to ensure she was gagged as they drove towards the mountains. Perfect kind of neighborhood if they had a sound ordinance and they got pulled over. Mm. I love neighborhoods of sound ordinances. Yeah. I don't, I like living where we live, but I kind of wish that we had one of those too because I've become an old person. If people drive too fast or have loud vehicles or have their music bumping down the road, I'm like, you are disturbing my peace in my home. I never liked it, even when I was a kid. I don't like loud things. Yeah. Upon reaching the secluded road, Norris instructed Bideker to take a walk for an hour while he raped Lucinda. When Bideker returned, they switched roles. Bideker raped her while Norris was away. Later, Norris returned again to rape her while Bideker stepped away. Lucinda asked if they intended to kill her, and Norris told her no, and she expressed that if they planned to kill her, she would like some time to pray beforehand. Oh, dear. Hmm. That's just sad. Yes, it is. Bitteker claimed that he and Norris disagreed later on about whether they should go through with the killing her part or not. Which one wanted to keep her? Norris attempted to strangle her. Um, I think Bitteker, it, it's just what he said. I don't know. But I think Bitteker was the one that was claiming he didn't want to kill her. Huh. Okay. But I don't know. It's just curiosity. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They, they did it regardless. Yeah. Norris attempted to strangle her with his bare hands, but mentioned that he couldn't bear to see the look in her eyes, and he hurried away to vomit. So, Bittaker assumed control. Strange, because Norris was the one that did the violent crimes before Bittaker was not. Bittaker assumed control, strangling Lucinda until she collapsed and began convulsing. He then retrieved a wire coat hanger from the van and tried to strangle her with it, but failed. What? So he used vice grip pliers from the toolbox to twist it around her neck until she stopped moving. Well, that was horrible. We're not done. I didn't figure. They ignored her plea to pray before killing her, proving even more how filthy and sinister they were. They wrapped her body in plastic. Now that seems detrimental to their whole natural (laughs) decomposing thing. Well, they wrapped her in a plastic shower curtain before throwing her over the edge of a steep canyon. Norris later said that Bittaker reassured him that the wild animals would handle her remains. Lucinda Schaefer was never found. Though Bittaker and Norris confessed to murdering her, she is still on the National Missing and Unidentified Person System because, as I said, she was her remains were never found. Those animals did their job after all. Yep. Goodness, these are terrible people. Yeah, they're horrible. Their next victim was Andrea Joy Hall, July 8th. 1979, approximately two weeks after Lucinda Schaefer, Bittaker and Norris found Andrea. They're moving quick compared to some. Yes. She was 18 years old. She had strawberry or blonde hair and blue eyes. Andrea was hitchhiking along Pacific Coast Highway when Bittaker and Norris spotted her. And just before they could stop to offer her a ride, another car picked her up. They followed the car, and when they realized it didn't take her as far as she needed to go, they pulled up to her. Norris hid in the back of the van, aiming to create the impression that Bittaker was alone. They speculated that she might trust more if she believed there was only one man in the vehicle. Did she trust the van? Nowadays, we know better. Well, Bittaker offered her a cold drink, and it was a hot day. She had been hitchhiking, so she accepted it. While he went to the back of the van to fetch the drink, Norris unexpectedly jumped out and grabbed her. Unexpectedly to him or to her? Her. Okay. One source said that she got in the van willingly, but then this one seemed to be the more used option. So even though she fought fiercely, he managed to get her into the van. 
and her ankles and wrists were bound with and adhesive tape was used to gag her. They headed to the mountains where Bittaker sexually assaulted her first and then Norris. While Bittaker was raping her a second time, Norris thought he spotted headlights from a potential approaching vehicle. In response, Bittaker covered Andrea's mouth and pulled her into nearby bushes. Norris drove off to investigate but found nothing and returned where Bittaker hid Andrea. They decided to move deeper into the mountains as a precaution, and Bittaker forced Andrea to walk up a hill naked and forced her to perform oral acts on him. Following that, he instructed her to pose for pictures he took with a Polaroid camera. That's like a going thing for people in this era. It's like a theme. They just keep going back. It's, it's every time you hear about one from this time. Yeah. It's, and it's also how they get caught. So yeah, even if it is stupid on their part, I guess it's a good thing they do it. I mean, it's not a good thing they do it, but it does le- usually lead to them getting caught. Yeah. So then they drove to a different area. Norris left to get alcohol from a nearby store while Bittaker forced Andrea to walk up another hill. What's up with the hills? I don't know. And I think there's another one, if I'm not mistaken, that he forces to do this. He just likes to watch him walk up hills or something. He's, a, he's particularly sick. He's just, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously. Yeah. But this yeah. is even weirder than most. Yeah. When Norris returned, Bittaker was alone and Andrea was nowhere to be found. Bittaker had two more pictures of her and they captured a terrified expression on her face. Bittaker informed Norris that he had made Andrea list as many reasons as she could think of as to why she should be allowed to live. And then apparently she didn't have enough for him. He then brutally stabbed her in one ear with an ice pick, which hit her brain. But apparently this attempt failed to kill her. Then he turned her over and repeated the same act in the other ear. This time he stomped on the ice pick until the handle broke off. And this also was while she was still alive. I don't know how she managed to live through that, but that must have been horrible. I'd say it was. They're not good at this. I mean, I guess the torture part they're good at, but the murder part they're not. They did it, but... I think it's the torture is... If you're trying to stab her in the brain, I don't think he expected her to survive. I wouldn't. No. I'm really surprised she did. That's what they say, though. That's their story. Afterwards, he strangled her with his hands and threw her over a cliff. Bittaker mentioned feeling nothing as he inserted the ice pick into her ears. Andrea's remains were never discovered, and and she too remains a missing person, even though they confessed to murdering her. They found victim three and four at the same time. Oh. This time. Jackie Gilliam was 15 years old, and I couldn't find like a written physical description of her, but I found a picture. It looks like she too has strawberry blonde hair with blue eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Jacqueline Lamp was 13 years old. Oh, no. And... I can't really tell from the picture what color her eyes are, but she's got blonde hair. September 3rd, Gilliam and Lamp, and I'm going to say their last names, not their first, because Jacqueline and Jackie, I feel like that's confusing. I'm bad with names. I didn't forgot half these people's names. Oh. It's not your fault. It's mine. And it'll always be the case. It's mm. never going to change. Oh, true. September 3rd, Gilliam and Lamp were sitting at a bus stop at Hermosa Beach when Bittaker and Norris saw them. They had been hitchhiking along the highway. So Bittaker and Norris offered them a ride, and the two girls agreed. Once they were inside the van, they were offered marijuana, which they also accepted. The girls soon noticed that they had strayed from the highway and were headed towards the mountains, but Bittaker and Norris attempted to justify the change in route, using various excuses to persuade them that it was okay. Mm -hmm. However, the two girls knew something was not right. 
Lamp tried to open the sliding door to escape, but was swiftly knocked unconscious by a blow to the head with a bag of lead weights. This gave Nora sufficient time to restrain and silence Lamp. While doing this, she woke up and attempted to escape the moving van again and succeeded for just a moment. Nora swiftly twisted her arm behind her back and pulled her back into the vehicle. Bittaker stopped the van to assist Norris, considering that the fight may be witnessed by bystanders. He punched Gilliam in the face, allowing them to complete the process of tying and gagging both girls. They're the real fighters. Then they drove to their destination in the San Gabriel, San Gabriel Mountains. Lamp and Gilliam were held captive for almost two days, which obviously was longer than the other two victims. Mm-hmm. They endured multiple instances of physical and sexual abuse. Bittaker and Norris alternated between sleeping in the van with them while the other remained awake to keep watch. Bittaker made Lamp climb a hill for pornographic photos. Is it just a view, maybe? I don't know. Maybe it's just because they're in the mountains and... The only way to go is up or down. Yeah. I don't know what his reasoning for that was. You go down, you still have to come back up. Yeah. Upon returning, he instructed Norris to take pictures of himself with her both clothed and naked. The only thing I could think of is maybe he thought, if we do get caught, you're going down too, and I want proof of it. I really don't know what was going through his head. Wasn't good. Yeah. During one of the sexual assaults on Gilliam, Bittaker recorded it. He directed her to pretend to be his cousin and told her to cry out if she was in pain. He then used an ice pick to stab her in the breasts, and it ripped off her nipple with vice grip pliers. I'm sure she did cry out. Yeah. Norris claimed that he said Gilliam should be swiftly killed due to her cooperation, and that Bittaker stated they only die once anyway. Gilliam was then strangled to death after being stabbed with an ice pick in each ear. Oh, I didn't think it wanted to come back. Yeah. Bittaker forcibly removed Lamp from the van while yelling, You want to stay a virgin? Now you can die a virgin. He then struck her on the head with a sledgehammer. Bittaker proceeded to strangle her until he believed she was dead. However, when she opened her eyes, they repeatedly struck her with the sledgehammer. And then Bittaker strangled her once more. Both girls' bodies were thrown over the embankment. Gilliam's skull was discovered with the ice pick still lodged in the ear area. Only partial remains of the two were found, though. And the next one is thought to be Bittaker and Norse's last victim, Shirley Lynette Ledford. October 31st, 1979, Bittaker and Norris encountered 16-year-old Shirley Ledford outside of a gas station. She had been hitchhiking after attending a Halloween party. and She was seeking a ride home. Recognizing Bittaker as a regular at the restaurant where she worked, when they pulled up, she accepted their offer for a ride, but she declined their offer of marijuana. Sure, she's just tired and wanted to go home. Yep. Bittaker drove down an isolated road while Norris used a knife to intimidate her. One source said that she grabbed the knife blade at one point. Oh. Yeah. He proceeded to bind her legs and silenced her with tape. And then the two men swapped positions, with Norris taking the wheel and Bittaker moving to the back. They drove around for over an hour, and Bittaker untied Shirley and removed the gag. He proceeded to torture her by mocking, slapping, and beating her. He shouted at her to say something and beat her when she cried out. And as he continued to beat her, he said, What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Wow. What a giant sack of shit. Yeah, just cruel. He's a bully. Yeah, he really is. Not just a murderer. There's a difference between, there's been slightly kind murderers, uh, ones who just aren't decent, 
at least outwardly. This guy is not one of those. No, he's garbage. And there should be a worse word, but I never could throughout this whole process of researching, could I find an appropriate bad enough word for these two. Mm -hmm. Shirley began to cry out and pleaded with Bittaker not to touch her. He ordered her to scream louder and commenced beating her with a hammer. He beat her breasts with his fist and inflicted horrific injuries using pliers while subjecting her to rape and sodomy. Part of this was he inserted the pliers into her vagina and rectum, causing severe tearing. And all of this gruesome torture was captured on an audio tape. That explains why he wanted all the noise. Mm Mm-hmm. The two men switched places once more, with Norris now in the back of the van, and he began yelling at Shirley to scream and struck her elbow with a sledgehammer, which caused her, obviously, to cry out that he had broken it. Ignoring her pleas, he proceeded to strike her elbow 25 more times. Ain't no elbow left. And then, while doing this, he asked her what she was sniveling about as she cried and screamed. You can only find part of the audio online, but I am going to read some of the transcript in part two, and it's disgusting and horrible, and they're just awful. After about two hours of torture, Norris strangled Shirley to death using a coat hanger and a pair of pliers. One source mentioned that when they found her and took the coat hanger off, that it had been twisted around her neck to the size of a silver dollar. There was a lot of blood involved in that. This time they dumped her on the lawn of a randomly chosen house in Sunland. And they wanted to get called. Yeah, that's, I don't see how after all this and all that planning, they could have just been that careless. They tossed her body into some ivy on the front lawn and the next morning, a jogger quickly found her. The following injuries were discovered during Shirley's autopsy. Neck compression marks, pedicle hemorrhages, I think is how that's pronounced. Blunt force trauma to the head and face, blunt force trauma to the breasts, vaginal and rectal lining tears, multiple elbow fractures, finger lacerations, and puncture wounds on her hand. Well, that was pretty rough. Yeah. Nearing the end of Norris and Bittaker's horrific crimes now, because they threw a body out where it would clearly be found. I wonder if one of them decided it would be cool and the other one's like, whatever, I don't care. And the one that decided to do it was wanting it over with. I don't know. It sounds like they wanted to be caught or recognition, but who would want to get recognition? Mm. It's just going to be harder to get people into your van at that point. Yeah. During that period, forensic science wasn't as good as it is today, and Bittaker and Norris managed to dispose of four victims' bodies successfully, I believe. You mean um, hide them or never be found again? Kind of hide. I think at this time, it was they weren't found. I want to say that later on they found the two that they abducted together. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. This obviously meant there was minimal evidence linking them to the girls' disappearances. There was no witnesses, no physical evidence, and other than Shirley's body at this time, no bodies were found. Norris confided in a former cellmate, which brought attention to his and Bittaker's actions. People will sell you out to get a lesser sentence themselves. What was he thinking? That Were they hunting for a third party, or maybe he's the one that wanted to just get caught? He's the one that wasn't very bright. Obviously. Now, now, okay. But I also think that later on, it mentions Bittaker talking about it, too, but I'm not sure. September 30th, before Shirley Ledford's murder, Bittaker and Norris had made an unsuccessful attempt to kidnap another girl. Her name was also Shirley, but this was Shirley Sanders. Unsuccessful. Good for her. Mm. (laughs) 
Yeah, no. It's a hard situation. She had come from Oregon to California to visit her father in Manhattan Beach. And while walking along the road, Bittaker and Norris approached her and offered her a ride. She declined. They resorted to using pepper spray and forcibly dragged her into the van. Now, you said she successfully escaped. Alive. She escaped alive. Oh, okay. During the drive, they took turns raping her. They briefly let her their guard down, which allowed her to escape. After being pepper sprayed and raped, good. Yeah. Like, still good for her, but... Strong. Strong. Not, strong. not great outcome, but better than the others. Yeah. Although she reported the sexual assault to the police, at the time she could only provide information about the color of the two men. They, she couldn't provide too much evidence. I had, I had been maced. <laughs> yeah. Following that incident, Bittaker and Norris decided to keep a low profile for about a month. And as a precaution, Bittaker relocated to a different apartment. October, Norris encountered an old prison friend named Jimmy Dalton and began boasting about their murders. Oh, wow. Yeah. He provided explicit details of the torture inflicted on their victims. And initially, Jimmy didn't believe Norris's stories about them until Shirley Ledford's body was discovered. Mm. And the injuries matched what Norris had described. Yeah. Jimmy consulted his lawyer, and together they went to the police with the information. That's a pretty cool dude, considering he was just out of prison himself. Yeah. He told the Los Angeles Police Department the information that Norris had shared and how Shirley's injuries aligned with the story. So Jimmy was sent to Hermosa Beach, where Detective Paul Benham or Bynum was in charge. Detective Paul was hesitant to believe the word of a former inmate due to the lack of evidence and because it was pretty much hearsay. He had heard it from a story. When Jimmy mentioned Bittaker and Norris driving a silver van, Detective Paul became interested. He remembered the surviving rape victim, Shirley Sanders, had mentioned being drugged into a silver van. Well, at least he put those two things together. Yeah. An officer was sent to Oregon to present Shirley Sanders with a set of pictures. She successfully identified Norris and Bittaker as her attackers. Was it a lineup kind of picture, I wonder, or if they just bring her two and said, is this the ones? <laughs> I believe they probably had a few different ones. Yeah. This information was then reported back to Detective Paul, and he brought the case to Deputy District Attorney Steve Kay, who had prosecuted Norris previously on a rape case. Not exactly a unbiased opinion. Yeah. Stephen Kay decided to build a stronger case before attempting to make an arrest, and he ordered surveillance on both Norris and Bittaker. In the meantime, November 20th, 1979, police observed Norris selling marijuana, which was a violation of his parole. He was promptly arrested, and Bittaker was arrested not long after. Both were charged with suspicion of the rape and kidnapping of Shirley Sanders. One was charged of selling drugs. Yeah. Upon his arrest, Norris quickly provided information. He chose not to deny his involvement, but instead placed the blame on Bittaker as the main offender. Good thing we have all these recordings. <laughs> While in custody, Bittaker and Norris's properties, including the van, were searched. This revealed evidence of the heinous crimes that the two had committed. And on November 30th, 1979, Norris was questioned by Detective Paul and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay about the rape of Shirley Sanders during a preliminary hearing. He displayed signs of stress and waived the reading of his Miranda rights. What does that mean? I thought they had to read the Miranda rights. I never heard of someone waving them. I don't know what that means. Because I thought that was, you have to read them no matter what. Yeah, the whole case could be kicked out if you didn't. I thought, but who knows? I don't know. 
Norris initially denied any involvement in the murders, kidnapping, and rape when questioned about Shirley Sanders and about what he had told Jimmy Dalton. Then he was presented with evidence, and he began confessing. Singing like a bird. Yeah. He admitted to his involvement, but attempted to shift the blame onto Bitteker, which happens a lot when there's two people involved in things like this. It's they the turn unspoken on each rule other. for most of them. They just know. Each of them know. We'll I'll trust each other while we're out. As soon as somebody gets caught, we're going to immediately turn on each yeah. other. And you have to accept that. Norris provided detailed information about their tactics, including offering bribes to entice girls into the van, facing rejection most of the time. He said that four girls willingly entered the van while one was forcibly taken. And then he went into great detail about the drive to the mountains, the sexual assaults, beatings, torture, and murders. I mean, at that point, you might as well say it all. Yeah. He confessed to brutally beating Jacqueline with a sledgehammer and repeatedly striking Shirley Ledford in the elbow with it. And he claimed that Bitteker's level of violence intensified with each victim. I can't see how it'd get much more violent. Yeah. You know, I, I don't even want to imagine it. He said that Shirley Ledford pleaded to be killed to end her suffering as well. He provided details such as Lucinda lost a shoe when forced into the van and that she was walking home from a Presbyterian church meeting when she was abducted. And he revealed that Bitteker had asked Shirley Ledford on a date before the night they attacked her and murdered her. Now I'm going to talk about some of the evidence that police discovered. I'm going to go into more detail about some of the evidence in part two, but I'm just going to go over some of it now. In the homes of Norris and Bitteker, law enforcement uncovered close to 500 Polaroid pictures of about 500 different young women and teenage girls. They must have been making a lot of money as drug dealers and electricians and stuff because those things weren't cheap. Many photos were taken at Hermosa Beach and Redondo Beach, but some were captured at a local high school. Oh, no. There were pictures of Andrea Hall and Jackie Gilliam among those discovered. They don't mention the other people who weren't picked up yet. Yeah. And this is just the ones that we know of. There may have been more. There may have been, but considering what they admitted to, I can't imagine. Yeah. Numerous bottles containing acidic materials were found as well. Norris claimed they were intending to use it in torturing their next victim. Their next victim. I got what she's going to say. Um, yeah. You would assume that they were going to eventually work up to just disintegrating the bodies like you see in movies. And yeah, that's what I thought. But they said to use, or he said to use for torture. Yeah, it would work for that too. It's awful. Inside of the van, various items potentially linked to the murders were uncovered, including the sledgehammer, a bag filled with lead weights, a book containing details on finding police radio frequencies, oh. necklaces belonging to two of the victims, a jar of Vaseline, audio tape, Recording of Shirley Ledford's murder and torture. Okay, they didn't really cover it up well. No. The Vaseline could be played off as waterproofing your Gas tank. distributed or something. Yeah. But or as chapstick. Anything. Um, but the tapes and yeah. the necklaces, that's a bit hard mm -hmm. to hide. Yeah, and the pictures. <laughs> the pictures. They want to keep souvenirs and things to remind them, but that's how you get caught. But mm. it's good that you get caught. So. Shirley Ledford's mother identified her daughter's voice on the audio tape. Oh, no. And the voices of the two men were recognized as belonging to Norris and Bittaker. I could not imagine him listening to that. Surely they picked, like, an early part of the tape or something. Uh, the whole courtroom heard the whole oh, tape. Oh, no. And 
there's parts of the transcript in part two that I will imply what is said, but I'm not going to actually read them out because it's I'm uncomfortable with it. YouTube would be too. It's, yeah. The, on YouTube, you can find a portion of it, but it's nowhere it, near as If it gets too awful. bad, they will take it down. Yeah. It's horrible, but we'll wait till part two to do that. Which is why these future ones are going to be on the exclusive premium thing too. Yeah. Stuff like that can go up without yeah. interference from other well, things. it's not even that that I'm thinking of. I'm just truly uncomfortable saying some of the things that we're saying. Just reading them aloud as if I was playing a character. I, I'm not going to play a character when I do that, but I was just so uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not doing that. A bracelet belonging to Shirley Ledford was taken by Norris as a souvenir that was discovered in his home. And following his confession, Norris agreed to assist detectives in locating the victims' bodies in the San Gabriel Mountains by accompanying them there. This is all the hills we had to walk up. Yeah. The most baffling thing is the hills. The only thing I could think of is that it was mountains and that they had no other option. I guess. Andrea Hall and Lucinda Schaefer couldn't be located at the specific sites that Norris said they had disposed of them. The possible reasons is that he may have forgot the exact locations, animal interference, scattered the remains, or challenging terrain hindered a thorough search. You know people have went back to search. Yeah. That's the kind, they're like dark tourism. Yeah. Or some people who just kind and want to try to find someone's lost loved one. Yeah. That's... Uh, I know somebody's had to have done it. February 9th, 1980, the skeletal remains of Jacqueline Leah Lamp and Jackie Gilliam were discovered. Mm. It was They were near a dry riverbed at the bottom of a canyon, and the bones were scattered over a large area, probably because of the animals. But sometimes these dry riverbeds become undried during rainstorms, yeah. too. Yeah. As mentioned before, Jackie Gilliam's skull was found with the ice pick still embedded in the bone, and Jacqueline Lamp's skull exhibited multiple dented injuries from when Norris beat her with the sledgehammer. Oh, horrific ways to go. Yes. At least they didn't have a chance to use the acid. Yeah, I guess that's a positive. Dahmer liked acid, didn't he? He did. Mm. But not for torture reasons, more for other reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was torture, but it wasn't his intention to hurt no one. Well, Uh, you know what I mean. (laughs) He said. I think it was. It was his intention to make them uh, brain dead. Yeah, brain dead. Zombies. Yeah, uh, that, that's intention of harm, I believe, harm, is what I would torture. consider. He didn't want them to resist or oh. uh, he felt bad about the suffering. I believe that's what was said. I don't remember. I haven't mm. watched, I can't watch a lot of Dahmer stuff. Yeah, we'll go into it one day. Although not all of the bodies were discovered, there was sufficient evidence for Bittaker and Norris to face charges of four counts of first degree murder. Murder. Never heard of that one. And one count of second-degree murder. Well, there's still plenty of murder. Yeah. This is where I'm going to end part one. Well, I never heard of these people, so. We will start with the trials and go into more detail about some of the evidence that the police found in part two. And I will, at that point, when I start to read that transcript, or at least the parts that I'm comfortable with, will mention the warning, trigger warning, because it's definitely. Now, this is going to be a two-part free episodes, right? Three. Listen to these, and if you want to, by then we'll have the subscription stuff set up. Yeah. So the next three weeks, uh, you'll hear the stories. But uh, and then that'll be the way that is to be the kind of content you'd get on as a subscriber. Yeah. Uh, and of course, if you don't like this kind of content, you can stick with this normal 
yeah. horrific stuff we do weekly. Yeah. yeah, this one's rough. Yeah. And it gets rougher. Also, uh, we're going to put up, like, uh, once we get more into the swing of it, put up polls. People can choose what the subscription, uh, what the subscribers will hear. Just kind of things like that, right? That's what we're yeah. going to do. Yeah. Also, probably a chance to be a guest on a podcast if you want to as one of the higher tiers. And, uh, yeah, just call in uh, kind of thing. We got means of doing that. And anything else we would thought about? Stickers. Uh, we're going to make stickers. I have design ideas. I just have to draw them out. Yeah. And we will send you stickers if you decide to. First tier subscribers will get the episodes, obviously, the special uh, longer episodes. and stickers or sticker and then we'll move on up from there there'll be other tiers but we've just worked out the first couple of tiers so far yeah um and just test the water see what people are interested in yeah bear with us for now these are still free episodes and they will be free just giving you an example of yeah what you would be paying for don't go looking for the subscription thing just yet because we haven't put them up yet yeah because we haven't recorded those episodes yet these are the sample we were gonna do this one but then i was like, you know what? I like knowing what I'm purchasing before I make a commitment to it. And they probably would like that, too. But if you want to hear more of our stuff, there's a link in the description, either on YouTube or on uh, the podcast app you listen to, wherever you're at. There'll be a link, tree link in the description. It will take you to all of our other stuff. All of our other podcasts will be in the first link. It'll be our website. Uh, it'll also be where you'll eventually find a subscription option for this one. Uh, there'll be this podcast in that website. There'll be Leveling Duo. It's a podcast about video games. There'll be Brotherner's Quest. It's a podcast where I tell her about tabletop role-playing games. And uh, there'll also be all of our social links in that link tree. Uh, you can reach out to us there. Twitter, X, and email directly to Beth for Horrific History and Hauntings. Let her know some stuff you might be interested in. Or tell her what you think. Leave us a review if you get a chance. Um, That'd be nice. We'd like to see it. Even if it's not a good one, we'll uh, respect it and understand that you might like something different and maybe change something we do that people really don't like. Check out the mm -hmm. YouTube. There ain't going to be, there's a bunch of gameplay videos on us playing games, but uh, also, if you don't want to hear these on your podcast app, you can get them through YouTube, YouTube Music, or just on YouTube. Anything else you want to say? No, I think I'm okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening. I've been Ramey. And I'm Beth. And this has been Perfect History and Audience. Bye-bye.